Do you guys want to do highs and lows? For always, the always. Ben. All right, Snape. Who always. who wants to start? Uh I can come up with something at, while I stall. Right. I can now. also just start. Okay, Ben, you start um, because I really just wanted to do highs. Um, I had a great case of ankle pain in clinic today. I have I have not seen a lot of ankle pain, and it really forced me to figure out what questions I needed to ask. I looked. I I had this great book. It's primary care for like, you know, it was a book on primary care that I was just like, oh, what questions do I need to do? What exams do I need to do? Hmm. And I just like I read it before I went to see the patient because I had some extra time, and man, I just felt so much better about abdominal. Uh, abdominal pain ankle pain <laughs> ankle pain abdominal pain <laughs> i felt so much better about ankle pain today after seeing this patient and i was like i can confidently say that you need an x-ray because you're not able to walk on your foot and like <laughs> yes i would have known that anyway but now i have like the auto rules to back me up and like what exam that. findings i need to do it was just it was a really cool primary care moment that is great thanks nice so how about you guys what were your highs today mine was super nerdy <laughs> i loved i loved it though um, okay, I got one. Excellent. So one of our cardiology attendings does this thing where they he ha, he does EKG rounds in the morning, and I like almost got the answer right. I, my differential was very good, and he was like, "Wow, Rachel, I know you love EKGs so much." <laughs> I was like, "Thank you, Doctor." Don't. <laughs> I'm beaming right now. Sean is beaming. You should have seen Sean's face when they said morning EKG rounds. It was just, that's just magical. Yeah. Uh, my high is that Rachel did so well in her EKG rounds. Intern Rachel would have been terrified. Resident oh, Rachel was like, yeah. bring it on. I got this. You're so amazing. I love that. <laughs> This is an episode of the MedLit Review. This is a MedEd podcast with a group of third-year uh, internal medicine residents, uh, casual, case-based journal club. Uh, this is for medical education purposes only and should not be used as medical advice. Our thoughts and opinions are our own and are not reflective of our programs, employers, institutions, future employers, now that fellowship match is over. Uh, and uh, as always, please subscribe to Apple Podcasts. Take it away, Ben. That was me snapping in the background. Are you going to even introduce us? He never does. My name's Ben Jones. I said, take it away, Ben. <laughs> yeah, you said Ben as my first name, and that's it. I am sitting here with the lovely Rachel Redfield yes. uh, and Sean Dickton. That's a that's a, a greeting that you deserve. Thank you. I Sorry I let you down. <laughs> Rachel and Sean, loaded yes. question. Have you ever had a patient on insulin in the hospital? What was that? Have you ever had a patient on insulin in the hospital? What was the name of the med- medicine that you... Insulin. Insulin? Never heard of it. I have patients who got the sugar. <laughs> the sugars. The sugars. Uh, I have taken care of many patients on insulin in the hospital. Actually, all of my diabetic patients in the hospital, I put on insulin, typically. That's good. Yeah. Rachel, how about you? Yeah. I mean, I would think I mean, most of my patients are on insulin, actually. Diabetes is something we get a lot of exposure to. Right. Have you ever had someone who was not on insulin at home who presented with a really high glucose level? Definitely. Frequently. So how did you decide to dose them with insulin if they needed it? I can tell you. Please, I do it. please tell me. I just, well, if they weren't on insulin, I 
basically multiply their 0.5 times their weight in kilograms. And then I divide that into two groups. So one of the groups, so let's say the patient weighs, how can I make this easy math? You've set yourself up for failure. <laughs> yeah, I'm oh, like, this is hard. what kind of, okay, 100? Yeah, sure. I'll do 100. Why 100. Not? Yeah. 100 times 0.5 is 50. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and then, so half of that is 25. So I'll say that is their basal insulin. So I'll choose something um, that's long acting mm-hmm. over 24 hours. Okay, and great. then the other half, the other 25, I'll split up. Um, to be pre-meal insulin. Mm-hmm. And you can also do like... So there'd if, be three doses of about what, would you say? So I'd probably say like, I'd probably pick like seven. Okay. Seven times three is 21. Eh, so, so where'd that come from? Where did I make up the point yeah, five? No, and, and that total or, daily uh, total daily amount of insulin that you just, just you used as a uh, part of it as a bolus and then part of it as pre-meal. Where did you, where'd you come up with that? Honestly... I think I was just taught it as a med student and you know, someone taught me you can use 0.3 to 0.5 multiply it by kilograms and divide by two, but I've never actually looked into, you know, well, it came from the rabbit two trial that we're going to talk about oh, today. I'm really excited about this. Hot diggity. <laughs> Hippity hop. Let's go. <laughs> I love this trial because it has dictated how we uh, try to optimize uh, glucose care in the hospital. Um, so that was fantastic, Rachel. That was um, almost to the letter the protocol that they use here with the slight caveat that they adjusted the total daily amount of insulin based on their presenting glucose. Hmm. So if their presenting glucose was less than 240, they did 0.4 times the uh, okay. kilogram uh, to calculate the total daily amount of insulin they were going to use. And then if it was greater than 240, they used um, 0.5. Nice. Uh, times so that was fantastic and but i want to get us started with a case uh to try to imagine how we might use this in the hospital so uh, mrs m is a 50 year old woman with type 2 diabetes diagnosed about six months ago she has hypertension and hyperlipidemia uh, and she's come into the ed with some frequent urination nausea and persistent fatigue for about two weeks uh, she was started on metformin therapy about a month ago, but was having trouble tolerating the dose escalation due to some abdominal cramping and diarrhea. Uh, the urination, nausea, and vomit, and I'm sorry, the urination, nausea, and fatigue have been gradually progressing, um, but she could hardly get up out of bed today, so she wanted to be evaluated. Um, uh, she stopped tolerating the metformin, as I mentioned, and she takes losartan and atorvastatin for her blood pressure and hyperlipidemia. Uh, vital signs show a heart rate of 95, blood pressure 105 over 60, temp 99.0, um, Fahrenheit respiratory rate 20, O2 sat 98% on room air. Her BMI is uh, 36.5 kilos uh, per meter squared. Uh, her weight is 108 kilograms. Her point of care glucose is 350 milligrams per deciliter, and her chem panel shows a serum glucose of 320. Uh, she can't uh, recall her previous creatinine or A1C. Uh, but our primary care provider, uh, because our primary care provider is in an outside healthcare system. So I have purposely left out a number of labs because I, I could talk about DKA, uh, diabetic ketoacidosis, and hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state for a really long time. And she clearly needs fluids, but we're not going to talk about that. Um, so, and you guys already answered this question so beautifully. How would we dose her insulin? Um, the rabbit two trial may give us some hints on how to do this which you guys already know don't don't dangle this carrot in front of us ben 
<laughs> that was cheesy. They're, they're nice. never ending. That was a great <laughs> pun on the rabbit. <laughs> so I, I do want to take a step back and just talk a little bit about insulins. So maybe uh, Rachel and Sean together, you can come up with what are some of the rapid slash ultra short, uh, short in- acting insulins, intermediate acting insulins and long acting insulins. Can we go back and forth and I'll name one and then you name one? Yes. We'll play it like categories. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to freak Let's out. Let's start with ultra short, which has an onset within 15 minutes. Let's bro. Aspart. <laughs> uh i'm gonna cheat lispro aspart oh glulacine i've I have never heard i've of never that. Pre- i've never prescribed yes. i've seen it on the, on the lists i've yeah. never seen mm-hmm. it Sorry. okay that's uh, all i got short yeah. regular <laughs> short acting insulins regular exactly <laughs> regular right, rachel insulin. sean how about a an intermediate acting insulin i'm not gonna look is this nph this yes. is nph yeah, yeah, correct okay. uh nicely Neil done. patrick harris long acting insulins rachel go Dedimir. love it uh glargine great that's Finally. Lantus, right? Glargine is Lantus okay. brand name. TM. Sorry, yes. brand name, but I just, yeah. you know. That's okay. Yeah, that's that's how a lot of people know it. Great. Um, and then there's one other that has an even longer um, duration of action. Also, Degladec insulin. Degladec. Yeah. Hmm. So this last, like this can last, this is a great one for type ones who are uh, not always going to have access to their insulin. I think Degladec um, lasts actually 42 hours. So that's great for the patient who isn't going to have, like, who might um, forget a dose and be like, oh, shoot, I need to do my basal. I forgot. Um, is this by the brand name Trulicity? Truceba. Truceba. Okay, mm-hmm. that's what it is. The brand that's name. it. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I, okay, Truceba. great. So you guys yes. crushed that. That was awesome. High five. Um, so we won't go too much into detail because we can all look up the onsets and duration of action. Um, and but one fun fact about uh, Levamir, the duration of action actually depends on the dose um, in units per kilogram. So that's kind of cool because it's it can be as short as six hours for 0.1 units per kilogram, or as long as 22 to 24 hours for doses of 0.8 units per kilogram. So this is a dose dependent insulin uh, in terms of its duration of action, which is fascinating I to think no about idea. medicines doing that. Because like, imagine if we were like, oh, 40 lisinopril will last you two days. <laughs> like, whoa. That's just, it's just an interesting concept. I don't, I, I did not look up why that is. And I cannot wait to become an endocrine fellow to learn why that is. I am excited for you to tell me after you learn it. I certainly will. <laughs> I certainly will. Um, okay. So uh, now that we've talked about the insulins. Um, we have talked about how we're going to dose this patient so the, the foundation of this uh, comes to us from uh, Guillermo Umperez uh, out of Emory uh, because we never really had a uh, the best way to dose patients for insulin. So I'm going to step us back a little bit more and talk about who this, who this um, trial speaks to. So this is for non-critically ill patients who are in the hospital who are insulin naive. So they specifically selected people who were not on insulin before they came in the hospital because you would just use the patient's home dose of insulin as a starting point. This is to figure out what you would use if somebody had never had insulin before. So admitted into the hospital, not super sick, never had insulin before. Correct. Got it. Correct. So um, the trial compared the efficacy and safety of basal bolus insulin, so the idea of a long-acting and a mealtime insulin, 
regimen for glycemic control uh, compared to just the sliding scale regular insulin. I'm going to give us a little bit of history about the sliding scale. So it came to us from Elliot P. Joslin. He's one of the first physicians to specialize in diabetes, and he was the founder of the Joslin Diabetes Center in Massachusetts, which is a fantastic uh, research institution and a care facility for uh, patients with diabetes. And he recommended uh, giving insulin based on the amount of glucose in the urine uh, in order to react to glucose levels. Uh, once blood capillary monitors became available, um, this innovation led to the creation of a, a multitude of different algorithms for sliding scale insulin. It was never conceived to be the only way to administer insulin, but it's easy and algorithmic. So many providers are just like, oh, just put them on sliding scale. And it became the default for a lot of people. So they didn't really have to think about it. Um, have you guys ever been guilty of this? Because I can tell you, even even early on in my training, I was kind of like, yeah, let's just put them on sliding scale. I'll be fine. All the time. And I hate sliding scales. Yeah. Because I stop paying attention once I yes. put that in. And then I look back, I'm like, I am not doing my job. And my, you know, the nurses are basically trying to make up for the mistakes I've made. Yeah, it, it, and it feels that way because you, you leave a patient who's been admitted for five days and their blood sugar is running like 200 to 300 and you're kind of like, eh, it's, it's not, it's fine. Yeah. But like, it's not. We, we have a lot of data that shows that hyperglycemia can cause complications down the line. Um, so, you know, it's associated with prolonged hospital stays. It's associated with infections and disability after discharge. Um, but you know, it's just, it, when it goes in the problem was it's like, Oh, it's type two diabetes, like low dose CDI, whatever. Mm -hmm. It's fine. Yep. And CDI correctional dose insulin. Correct. Another way of saying sliding scale. Yeah. Not, yeah. not as pervasive a term as sliding scale though. Yes. I would say if you were going to use the term SSI, it, it is better to use correctional dose insulin, mm -hmm. uh, than sliding scale. Got it. Um, yes. So that, that's oh, I true. thought they were the same thing. Or you they mean just are, the vocabulary? In terms of vocabulary okay. and in terms of... Uh, because, the, I mean, the scale doesn't necessarily slide. It is it is more accurately called a correctional, correctional dose. dose. The scale doesn't necessarily slide. <laughs> Debunking the myths. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about what correctional dose insulin does because it's not a physiologic way to approach insulin. So we check the blood glucose before a meal. And we say, hmm, it's a little high. We should give a little bit of insulin because it's going to be even higher after we eat. And it's reactive to the glucose level. Your pancreas, when it senses that the glucose level is going up, is already secreting insulin. We're just taking a snapshot and saying, well, that's high. We got to give some more insulin. Imagine if your heart, or let's, let's go with the liver. Imagine if your liver was like, ooh, let's check the toxins. And then, like, let's metabolize them now because we checked them. Like, that's that would be <laughs> terribly inefficient. Or if your heart was like, ooh, let's check the blood volume. I think we should pump now. Like, <laughs> whoa. That doesn't, that's not great. I love that you catered to both of us with that. I did. I Thank thought about I do. it. I, that was a really good analogy. Thank you. Yeah. That's sort of what we're doing with CD, SSI, yeah, or yeah. Coverage uh, Correctional Dose Insulin. Right. So Rabbit2 hoped to assess um, the SSI compared to more physiologic insulin dosing. So it was a prospective, multi-center, open-label, randomized study. Uh, population uh, included inpatients age 18 to 80 with known history of diabetes. This is important for limitations uh, when we talk about it later. Uh, they've known about this diabetes for at least three months. They go to medicine services and their blood glucose range is from 140 to 400 milligrams per deciliter. And they do not have DKA. 
Other exclusionary criteria include known diabetes, ICU, or I'm sorry, without known diabetes, so they didn't know they had diabetes, ICU patients, corticosteroid therapy, expected to undergo surgery during the hospital course, serum creatinine over three, pregnancy, and any mental conditioning, quote, rendering the subject unable to understand the scope and possible consequences of the study. What do you guys think about these exclusion criteria? God bless you for putting that in quotes because <laughs> I don't know how else I would have interpreted that. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I think those are pretty good criteria. I mean, I don't know why it would matter if the patient knew or didn't know they had diabetes before the hospitalization. Personally, yeah. I don't know if that's trying to get at like uh, they haven't had diabetes for a long time or maybe their diabetes is so bad and they didn't have, you know, resources or the education yeah. and they're coming in with complications of diabetes. I don't, I don't know how to. I also really struggled with interpreting that one. I, it seemed to be important. And I, one of my favorite apps for trials actually goes into this. It's uh, called Journal Club Medicine. Mm-hmm. And it makes the point that this uh, exclusion criteria for patients without a known history of diabetes might actually disproportionately, just like you said, exclude people with low socioeconomic status because they haven't been able to get to a doctor to actually make the diagnosis. So, you know, I think that... Um, it's, it's something to keep in the back of our minds because a lot of times we're having these hyperglycemic patients come into the hospital with glucoses of 400, 450, and they're just being diagnosed for the first time. And um, this trial technically wouldn't include them. Right. Hmm. I also wonder if that would be considered as unable to understand the scope and possible consequences of the study because that could be interpreted so subjectively by different people who would say if you haven't you know been able to establish care or maintain care with a primary care provider maybe that excludes you in and of itself yeah it's really true you know sorry i'm hung up on that line but you know it's 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 all sort of concerning yeah absolutely um so going into some of the study design a little bit more uh the study assigned patients randomly to receive uh sliding scale insulin ssi or basal bolus insulin plus ssi with glargine and glulysine those were the insulins that they chose uh daily adjustments were made based on the blood glucose concentration in the basal bolus group and the ssi regimen was also adjusted if the patient remained hyperglycemic so this was defined as a blood glucose persistently above uh, 140 milligrams per deciliter Uh, So they had three columns, basically low, moderate, and high dose, uh, and they labeled those as insulin-sensitive, usual, and insulin-resistant. Importantly, if patients had three consecutive values over 240 milligrams per deciliter or at a mean daily glucose value of greater than 240, they were placed into the basal bolus group. Any patient who developed hypoglycemia had their SSI regimen adjusted. What do you guys think? Do Do you understand that design? What questions do you have? So two separate groups, mm-hmm. and then uh, the each of those groups had these three columns within them, the low, moderate, and the high, or only the... Uh, that only applied to the SSI. That only applied to the SSI group. So the, so the SSI within the... Oh, with the, I see. Uh, each group. So Because they both the, had... Did they both have basal bolus with no. them? No. Oh, I see. That's only the... the SSI group had just SSI, and then only the basal bolus group, I'm sorry, had the basal and bolus. Got it. The SSI was also there, but um, to, to as correctional dose for the basal bolus group. Okay. Does okay. that make sense? Okay. So you either got basal bolus plus minus 
SSI if mm-hmm. you needed it. If you needed it. Or just SSI, also Correct. known as correctional dose, dose insulin. insulin. Yes. Yes. And I'm going to call it SSI because that's how they call it in the trial. Okay. That's that makes sense. Fine. Just so we're all on the same page. So yeah, exactly. Um, their primary endpoint was differences in glycemic control as measured by mean daily blood glucose concentration. They used an ANOVA or analysis of variance to analyze this information. So it's a statistical method uh, of analyzing the differences among means of a sample. There are uh, multiple groups and the ANOVA attempts to see if there are any differences between the groups. In its simplest form, it provides a statistical test whether where there are two or more population means that are equal and therefore generalizes the t-test beyond two means. Okay, so t-test for two groups, ANOVA for anything more than that. Exactly. So the setting where I do an ANOVA is when I'm comparing continuous variables, so means. Mm-hmm. So it's not yes or no. It's not binary. Okay. It's like something like temperature mm-hmm. or something like blood sugar. Mm-hmm. And um, a, what, so someone might say, okay, well, I remember from stats class that when I'm comparing two means, I use a t-test. So how is this different from a t-test? Like a t-test is literally comparison of two means based on standard deviation mm-hmm. and, uh, and how close those means are. And the response is that this compares more than two means. This right. is a super right. t-test. Yeah, I like that. So moving on to the results, um, there were a total of 130 non-critically ill patients with diabetes uh, with an even 65 in the basal bolus group and uh, 65 in the SSI group. Mean age was 56 with wide variability in the standard deviation that was 13 years. Uh, the average BMI was 32 uh, with a standard deviation of 8. Uh, the average length of stay was actually 4.2 days uh, with a standard deviation of six days in the basal bolus group and 5.1 uh, with uh, a standard deviation of four in the sliding scale group. And this p-value, though not reported, was called non-significant by the authors. I just think it's funny that they're like, oh, yeah, this SSI group like had a shorter length of stay maybe, but like it's not significant. Don't worry about dot, it. Dot, dot, dot. Don't worry about <laughs> it. Exactly. Um, all right. So got lots of numbers, but stay with me. The mean admitting glucose was 227. Okay. Standard deviation was 66. Comparing the SSI group uh, with basal bolus for fasting glucose. This is okay. So mean admitting glucose was 227 for overall. Total total All sample. Both total groups. sample. Okay. Yep. Got both it. Groups. Elevated, the, right? Elevated, but not yeah. crazy. Okay. Thank it's you. Elevated, Sean. Don't get crazy. <laughs> Don't get crazy. Exactly. So um, the fasting glucose in the SSI group was 165 with a standard devi- deviation of 41. And for the basal bolus group, it was uh, 147 with a standard deviation of 36. The p-value was less than 0.01. Huh. Those numbers are kind of close. They are kind of close, Sean. And we're going to talk about that. Okay. Because um, it's... it. They are close. I'm sensing some juicy goss. Maybe. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. We'll, we'll talk about it. I mean, cool. I think it's kind of. I, so I think what it's you're saying juicy. is, sorry, fasting glucose for Correct. both groups were very similar. Correct. Pretty okay. pretty close, and with an overlapping standard deviation, but statistically significantly still different. Still statistically significantly different. The random glucose, a little bit even more significant p-value. The random glucose was 189 with a standard deviation of 42 compared to 166 with a standard deviation of 32 the p-value was less than 0.001 so a lot of o's a lot of more o's a whole nother o okay 
Um, the percentage of patients. So this is this statistic is, I think, where the money's at. The percentage of patients within the mean glucose target range of less than 140 milligrams per deciliter was 38% in the SSI group compared to 66% in the basal bolus group. But they don't give us a p value. Why not? I was like, what? Couldn't you just tell us? <laughs> but wait, really? Um, yeah, they don't. They don't. They're not reported. It's wild. Mm-hmm. I was like, what? Oof, magoof. And Wait a second, that's so interesting. There must be a reason for that. There, I, I don't know what it is. Yeah. It, I don't know why they don't tell us. Okay, so just to repeat that, the mean glu- glucose, just the random mean of one, you know, one group compared to the other mean of this other group, was thirty-eight percent in the sliding scale versus sixty-six percent in the basal bolus group. Yes, it's just w- report the p value. Just tell us. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And tell me again what the remind me again what the um, the primary endpoint was. So the primary endpoint is uh, glucose control. At the like the mean, the differences in glycemic control as measured by the mean daily blood glucose level. So, so is that what this is? So they it, kind of. This is this percentage is the percentage of patients within the mean target range that's less than 140. Okay. So, but it's not, um, you know, they don't tell us like they, I just don't understand why they don't give us a p value. There's, there's got to be a reason, like some sort of statistical. Because I think the way that they're doing it is by they're comparing the differences of each of the means by giving us those p values but i don't understand why they don't tell us can i okay so so i want to try to now that we have all these numbers swirling around i want to try to reinterpret this in the context of the length of stay uh, piece that you said sure if that's okay so this fasting glucose of 165 for our ssi group was over how many days this was over so the mean length of stay was five in each group Okay, so this is a five-day average fasting glucose for each, plus or minus, give or take. Six on the standard. Six was a standard deviation, so it could be like two days. That's incredible. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. All right, all right, all right. but one sixty-five to one forty-seven, so higher in the SSI group. Yes. And one eighty-nine to one sixty-six for random glucose, also higher in the SSI group. Yes, and I think so. What they're saying is the mean fasting and the mean randoms were both higher in the SSI group. And Which that's, makes sense. Yes. In a way. Especially the fasting. Yes. Yeah. And and so that's what they're using as their like primary endpoint. I love the percentage because it's so much more meaningful to me to say that two thirds of patients actually had glycemic control when they were on basal bolus plus SSI compared to only about a third who had glycemic control with just SSI. I don't know why there isn't a p value. Um, it's it's frustrating, but it is. Um, this is the reality we is, live in. This is the paper. Yeah, I think what's interesting is that is our goal ultimately is for patients to have the to be less than one forty on average all day. You know, it's not just like ooh the fasting thing. Correct. Thank yeah. Thank you. Glad that worked <laughs> out. And then you just ignore the rest of the right. day. So, 
I think the mean glucose target range, but I, I would love to be, or I would love to see how much they varied. Yes. Com- comparing the two groups. Comparing the two groups. Exactly. And this is actually, this goes into uh, continuous glucose monitoring. Um, the idea of quote time and range where you're monitoring somebody's glucose like all day and you see like, Oh, at dinner, your glucose peaks, like what's up. But like the rest of the day, it's fine. Do you just have a lot of sugar at night? Like what's the deal? Mm-hmm. And, and that is going to become much more, uh, the, the trend of just trying to reduce glycemic variability so that patients are at a at a more even keel glucose level and that's the goal right we don't want people peaking and and troughing right because you know they're likely to get low they could be too high they could be having symptoms we want people to be like a straight line and that's what the pancreas aims to do so it's, it's such a good point i would love to have seen these people on cgm to see where they went yeah um, and I bet, you know, a future trial, once CGM becomes much more uh, inexpensive, could do that. Okay. Also, audience, you guys can't see Ben making many hand gestures, like <laughs> waves. I wish I cared as down, much about this down, as I did about many other things. Straight lines. It's quite entertaining. I'm really excited. <laughs> Is Wait, uh, one thought. How many times have I cared about a difference of 18 milligrams per deciliter of glucose? Great question. Yeah. It's... It seems because that's our difference, right? That's our difference between these groups and fasting glucose. Yes. How how um, clinically meaningful is this difference? mm, That 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 was good, Sean. Like, I wonder if I type into it. There's calculators, right, where you can Mm -hmm. estimate a patient's A1C by Mm -hmm. typing in and just assuming Mm -hmm. their glucose is constantly at 200, and I will estimate an A1C. If I reverse engineer that and say they're Serum glucose for three months is 165. What's that make their A1C? And if their serum glucose for three months is 147, what does that make their A1C? It can't be more than a 0.2% difference. It's not a lot. It's not how how clinically significant is this difference? Mm. And and how many times did, I'm sure you're going to get to this or maybe not, but how many (laughs) times did the uh, basal bolus group become hypoglycemic oh great great question show me the money ben so there were two patients in each treatment group who had values below 60 milligrams Mm. per deciliter two patients in each group none had values below 40 milligrams per deciliter there were no adverse outcomes from treatment one patient died in the basal bolus group due to a acute respiratory failure from a pe not related to their um their glucose therapy or was it okay <laughs> conspiracy theory good luck with that pathophys audience yeah right yeah <laughs> please email us at the med lit review to discuss the pathophysiology of glucose and a pe um but seriously if you can figure it out that'd be fantastic um but no so the the caveats that i found really interesting was that there were nine patients in the ssi group who had uncontrolled uh, glucoses so I, I mentioned that if they were 240 or above they crossed over but we don't know how they were analyzed they don't talk about intention to treat they don't talk about per protocol they just say that they quote crossed over and i don't know if they were excluded from the analysis or not it's just not mentioned in the paper It's fascinating because thinking about that now, I don't know that that would fly. I think that would get sent back to be like, how did you analyze these, this like large portion of your study? This is like, it's like 16% or something of the group that gets like, like, where did they go? Did they analyze it in the SSI group or did they analyze it in the basal bolus group? I don't know. 
Hmm. Um, Wait, how many patients? Nine in the so, SSI group. So nine of them in the SSI went above 240. So Three then, times consistently. So then they crossed them over into the basal bolus group to actually get them control. Oh. And we don't know how they were analyzed. Yeah. That, so that's would weird. Would that make it even harder with an ANOVA? I don't know. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I don't know. Because which group? Well, <laughs> it just depends on which group yeah. you're putting them in. And so, you know, it's that that I found fascinating that it was just like, we don't know. Hmm. I get the sense this would skew the data if you take all the top end from one group and put them in another group. Totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah. Um, there, the authors also talk about how the basal bolus required more insulin. Like, no kidding. Because mm-hmm. you're limited by the S- nice the correctional <laughs> dose insulin, so it was like 42 units plus or minus three units in the basal bolus group compared to 12 and a half units plus or minus two units in the SSI group. Kind of whatever. Um, that's like no kidding, but something to think so about. So more insulin gets your sugars better controlled. Mm. Strokes chin, relatively <laughs> rabbit. <laughs> so moving on to the discussion. There's better glycemic control with the basal bolus insulin compared to the sliding scale insulin alone. Woo. Yay. It's a nice. small trial. But like as Sean pointed out, is it really a clinically significant difference? It's, you know, we this this trial was big because it showed us like what we should do in the hospital, right? Like we want better glycemic control, even if it's only at the margins, it's a little bit better. Um, it's like a necessary wake-up call for those people who are only using SSI out of convenience. They're like, oh, crap, I could do better. Um, but I want I do want to go into limitations a little bit more. So we talked about the social determinants of health and excluding those who had low, potentially had low access of care. Um, and I just want to take a quick aside to address the high economic burden that caused that diabetes causes to individual patients. You're talking about, so you're talking about people who are probably more disproportionately poor because they have, um, they have less access to food. So we always tell our patients like, hey, lose weight. Like it's, be- it's healthier for you. You could be causing diabetes by eating that milkshake from a fast food joint. Um, that's only a dollar. And, you know, who wants to buy a $5 avocado when you can buy an entire meal for $5 from a fast food joint? So, uh, you know, and then we're asking these patients to be like, oh, get a glucometer, get some test strips, get some lancets. Oh, and then some alcohol wipes because we don't want to make, you don't want to get an infection. Um, and then like, oh, take this $300 pill a month to like help you help you bring that sugar down. It's it's just a lot of costs that are people who are already heavily uh burdened um in the in the healthcare system so i just want to like i just want to put it out there that like that diabetes we talk about these lifestyle changes like they're no problem they sound easy to us but they're really hard for people who just don't have access so um, thank you for touching on that i'm doing snaps ben that needs to be i did want to talk about so like what have you guys had in terms of experiences with social determinants of health and diabetes have you have you had a patient who's just like you're just really trying to get that glycemic uh, that a1c down but you can see that they're just like there's just a barrier that you're really struggling to take down i've seen it in a lot of different phases i've seen the uh i'm desperately trying my best but i can't Mm-hmm. because I can't afford it because yeah. all this medicine is so expensive at like almost that I am now as the clinician, a cause for anxiety. You yeah. know, I'm making them stressed. I'm making totally. them feel uh, uh, like they're doing a bad job because I'm setting a, uh, I'm setting a standard that 
they're bound to fail at because they don't have the resources they need through no fault of their own. I've seen that end of the spectrum. And then I've seen the other end, which is just hopelessness. You know, the person who's given up because for X number of years, they've been told their A1C is high because they've been given these expectations and it sort of breeds, you know, unfortunately it, it, it breeds this, this, you know, distrust with the medical field, you know, like you guys, clinicians set these bars that I can't achieve and I don't want to continue to be a failure. So I can, I reject your notions that I am one and it's sad. Yeah. Thank you for sharing, Sean. How yeah. about you, Rachel? Yeah, I I think there's just so many barriers. Like you touched on the food, um, just in general. My sister's a nutritionist, and um, she's told me about patients that you know she finds out are on food deserts, and they don't have access to yeah. any healthy food. And if, even if they can get there, uh, it's too expensive. Or, you know, we tell our patients walk, walk, you know, all all it takes is just a walk. Well, I've had a patient say to me, well, it's not safe to walk where I live. And, and and that's just the beginning of it. That's just at the preventative stage. If you can see that patient long before they develop diabetes. And then once they do have it, it it has a, a huge stigma against it. A lot of people, a lot of families have parents or cousins or grandparents who have had the ends the end stage complications of diabetes and that's what they immediately think of and they want to take care of themselves, but insulin costs $200 a month and I have to stick myself all the time. And I don't know. It's, I can't imagine having diabetes, uh, even just from a simple financial standpoint, yeah. um, let alone all the other barriers that patients face. Um, yeah. It's pretty heartbreaking. It's It really is. I mean, imagine having to worry about your blood sugar every day on top of everything else that you worry about every day. I personally can't because I worry about everything. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I just can't imagine having to think about that. That'd as be much like of these worrying people. about breathing. Like you just, yeah. you do it automatically. Right. I just trust my diaphragm or I trust my pancreas to just do it yeah. and not stress me out about it. Yeah. It's, it's really tough. It's, it, so just for, for all you listeners out there, just remember that when you're frustrated about your patient who at your patient for not having better glycemic control, just take the extra step of thinking about what the underlying cause is, because it's probably a lot of things that you can't control, but it's something that we just have to be a little bit uh, understanding about, um, more snaps. So <laughs> thanks, Sean. Yeah. Um, I want to just, we've talked about a lot of the limitations, just like these, the, the crossover people, like where did they go? Um, as a reminder to uh, hear a, a, an in-depth discussion about per protocol analysis versus intention to treat, uh, check out episode two, Sage Advice, uh, where we kind of go into that a little bit more. Uh, I do want to talk about uh, funding, which was a topic of episode five, a shocking investigation. And um, the the funders of this study were uh, a couple of different organizations. Synovi Aventus is an insulin manufacturer. Um, the American Heart Association, the NIH, and the General Clinical Research Center funded this study. So yes, an insulin manufacturer helped fund an insulin study. Um, I, I think the authors are being pretty pragmatic here. It's, you know, they're partnering with industry, but they're not solely relying on industry. Um, and it's clearly not only funded by Synovi. So it's, you know, it's, yes, it's worth noting, like, yeah, they use more insulin, like, okay. 
But, you know, did it get better glycemic control? Objectively, yes, it did. Was it clinically clinically meaningful? Remains to be seen that there were, the study wasn't powered to look at mortality benefit. So it's a, it's a hair suspicious, but it's not, it's not as bad as, as it could be. Exactly. And then that's sort of how I feel. It's like, we acknowledge that insulin manufacturer helped fund the study. Yeah. What do you, what do you think, Rachel? No, I mean, I, in general, just big picture with this study. I mean, I've been practicing, I mean, what, with the exceptions of the times that I just throw on a CDI in general, I know the right way to practice in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And in general, I do practice evidence-based medicine, but I did not realize it was based off of the, this rabbit study that didn't actually show giant difference, mm-hmm. but I still have it in, ingrained in me that it's yeah. it's beneficial you just you recited know? that at the drop of a hat with yeah. no with minimal prompting yeah <laughs> yeah no, you just is... you just inherently knew the protocol for this trial yeah that's I which mean... is amazing to think about like how many studies have done that how many studies have ingrained a protocol in us just like a number a protocol and i had no idea are you if you would have told me down. what you're doing is named after a fluffy animal <laughs> i would have been like i don't know what you're talking about yeah speaking of none of you guys picked up my hair joke what did you say? Oh, oh a hair. Oh, uh, nice. very that good. was good. So I think uh, I think <laughs> Yamro and Perez in this group has to be commended for the promotion of this technique because it has it has pervaded all education, and this is how we think about dosing patients in the hospital. Um, and I do want to wrap up our case. Um, so by the trial protocol from Rabbit Two, uh, Mrs. M would be started on uh, 0.5 units per kilogram. Uh, for her total daily dose of insulin because her uh, admission glucose was over 240 milligrams per deciliter. So that ends up being 54 units of insulin per day since she was 108 kilograms. Uh, She would receive 27 units of insulin as a long-acting form of insulin, which would be glargine by this protocol, and then nine units of short-acting insulin prior to meals. That's, uh, for those paying attention, that's three doses of nine units of insulin for a total of 27 units of prandial mealtime insulin, and then sliding scale coverage for backup, or rather correctional dose insulin as backup. Any final thoughts? What questions do you have? I started general medicine month uh, next week, and now I'm going to be acutely cognizant of all of my patients' blood sugars. Good. To the detriment of all of their other medical problems. (laughs) It should never be at the detriment. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All right. Um, Rachel, any final thoughts? Nope, I loved it. Can I add one more thing is how do I generalize this to my patients? So like, so patients who, and we can exclude this if you don't like it, but I think of all the folks who are excluded here. So Mm -hmm. patients, did they have a creatinine below three? Three. Greater than three was an exclusion criteria. And why, Sean? Why would that be an exclusion criteria? I mean, it affects our our insulin dosing, right? Yeah, exactly. It's an insulin accumulate and, exactly and you can't go off a 0.5 protocol 0.5 units per kilogram if they're an acute aki because you're gonna you you actually should reduce that by about 25 percent depending on the degree of aki yeah um so that i mean a little bit of steroids data so there go all my patients with copd exacerbations or consider treating for rheumatologic conditions yeah, totally no patients who uh, I guess I don't have many pregnant patients on my service, but patients who have n- no established diagnosis of diabetes, oftentimes I'm, we make the diagnosis in the hospital. Patients who have, like, understand the... Sc- I mean, I just feel like it's not... At, I mean, 
it has a lot of validity the study does but I don't know how generalizable it's going to be. Sure, and and they have there have been subsequent studies that have that that have validated this in people who have known diabetes or like new okay. diabetes, and it's you know it it is still an acceptable protocol for those people, um, but it's probably why where some people have just sort of said like oh just give 10, 10 of Lantus and like see where they go, <laughs> or ten of Glargine and see where they go. Um, because that's and that's that's true. sometimes what we do in the outpatient setting when it's like we're gonna start some insulin, but like we don't know how much. Let's just start Lantus and just see, and we have them check sugars and and follow it along. Um, yeah, I also feel like I actually do apply this protocol to my patients who who are already on insulin because people come in with some pretty crazy outpatient insulin regimens where yeah. they're on like the majority basil and only a little bit of pre-meal and i'm like ooh, they're gonna be sick in the hospital so oh, i want to yeah. low so i like add it all together divide by two or i'll just say okay i'll get their weight multiply by 0.5 and just kind of pick whichever one feels right what an art <laughs> there is an art uh, it's it's almost like there's a whole specialty <laughs> practically dedicated <laughs> to this. thank god we have artists like yourself then <laughs> Hand-waving artists. Hand-waving. <laughs> Emphatically hand artists. <laughs> Hopping up and down. Well, thank you, Ben. All right, guys. This has been an episode of the MedLit Review. Thank you guys so much for watching. And thanks, Ben, for an awesome trial. This has uh, been fun. Uh, special thank you, as always, to Ryan Dickton, our editor, and Aaron Miller, who does all of our uh, art. And special thank you to Zeba Husseini, who is our new social media editor. And uh, show notes out of there. So thank you to Zeba. We're so happy to have you on board. Yay. And thank you all to all of our fantastic listeners. We appreciate all the feedback you guys have given us and the likes and subscribes on Apple Podcasts. Please follow us on social media, on Instagram and on Twitter at med underscore lit underscore review. We appreciate all the likes and retweets and forwards and getting what we're trying to do out there. Uh, thank you so much. Yes. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. You know what's less interesting than that chart? Diabetes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad you think so. (laughs)